very soon in about five years we'll be coming up well i guess four now we'll be coming up on 200 years of the anniversary of the black press so this was started in 1827 uh in new york um with the freedoms journal um so it was a group of black people that came together and decided that they wanted to you know voice their opinions um, and, and get that message out and spread and i mean and since then it has been a um it's just provided a the, the a lot of people call it the mouthpiece or i've seen it referred to as a mouthpiece uh, of, of the movement essentially and so uh, when you think about the black press i think about you know ida b wells um and her you know significant contributions and just all of the different publishers that have came through and and what i really love is that and that's what this project we're starting to highlight is that a lot of these publications are still around in a lot of these areas and i don't think a lot of people know about it specifically african-americans um you know as a one thing i did when i got to on the project was as i hired my staff i had them pick their own publisher um that 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 we have in the collection and i'm having them follow that publisher throughout you know their time here and so uh, that has been amazing for them to share some of the things that they, they they've gotten out of that so yes it's it's so important um it, it was important it is important and it will be important uh, moving forward when you talk about just that 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 black perspective that black voice uh, in the world and it, and you talk about newspapers right it covers so much but this always gives a different perspective uh, than than you know the, the the traditional white perspective. Hi there, and welcome to the Mission Forward podcast, where each week we bring you a thought-provoking and perspective-shifting conversation on the power of communication. I'm Carrie Fox, your host and CEO of Mission Partners, a social impact communications firm and certified B Corporation. And that, at the top of this episode today, was the voice of Brandon Nightingale. Brandon is a historian and the Black Press Archives Digitization Project Manager at the Moreland Springarn Research Center, which is in the Founders Library at Howard University. Quick backstory. I heard Brandon speak at the opening of the Howard University Center for Journalism and Democracy earlier this year. And when I tell you I was intrigued, it is such an understatement. I went up and found him right after his presentation and asked if he would come on and help me launch this season of Mission Forward. So uh, no surprise, I have built this season around wanting to start this conversation and soon you will find out why. But let me just tell you a quick bit more as we get into this. Brandon is doing some of the most interesting work uh, that I have heard of in a long, long time. He is researching and documenting the history of the black press. He's gonna tell us more about why that work matters, his personal journey of the story, and the possibilities of what is to come. So stay tuned for an incredible conversation with Brandon Nightingale. We'll see you on the other side. Yeah, and uh, thank you for having me, Carrie. Um, you know, you were one of the, the many people that, that that came up to me after the, the Democracy Summit uh, within, when uh, Henry Nicole Jones opened that uh, Center for Journalism and Democracy. And I mean, it's just been taken off since. And that's where we officially released the project. So, um, but yeah, how did I get to the project? That's a very interesting question. So um, by trade, I'm a historian. You know, I went to uh, University of Central Florida, got my undergrad and my master's in history, a uh, master's specifically in public history. 
And um, I also have a library science degree from uh, a Florida State University. Um, but really just that passion for history um, actually happened for me in 2017. That's when it sort of really kicked off for me. Uh, I got a chance to intern in Washington, D.C. Uh, at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, the Smithsonian. And that's when I realized, OK, like this thing here, I, I can really see myself doing this um, and being, being surrounded by so many, uh, um, you know, memory keepers, you know, especially of, of these African-American history memory keepers. Um, I was just blown away. And that's what sort of propelled my career. Um, and here we are, you know, five years or now going on six years from that time in 2017. And I find myself in Washington, D.C. again, but this time at Howard University. And so when it came down to, um, you know, last year around this time, I was applying to Ph.D. programs, wasn't sure where I was going to get into. And I got into Howard, uh, but they actually weren't offering any any funding. If, if you if you're a student at Howard, you kind of know how this story plays out. They don't traditionally offer too much funding. There are different ways. I just missed out on some opportunities and wasn't able to get anything. And so I just knew how how it was I had to be in Howard. I had to be in D.C. Um, I got into Florida State and, and I got into University of South Carolina. But how it was it, it, I just knew it. So I began to apply for jobs on campus, knowing that a lot of schools offer uh, tuition remission. And the Black Press Archives was one of the jobs that I applied for. They actually had their archivist position uh, posted, but I didn't get that one. And I, I was the university archivist at Bethune-Cookman prior to my time coming to Howard. So I applied and um, I, 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 you know, I got in that way and um, I was able to defer my my studies for a year. Um, so I start the Ph.D. in history um, in the fall of this year. So very excited about that. And as far as, you know, again, I, it, it's sort of two birds and one stone because I, I needed something to pay for my education. And this was this was the way to do it. But aside from that. Right. Just the opportunity to to lead a project that is so important. Uh, when you look at the history of this specific project, right, this was something that uh, the collection, the Black Press Archive, this was something that started in 1973. Um, it was uh, the collection was donated um, by the National Newspapers Publishers Association, otherwise known as, otherwise known as NNPA. And since then, Howard has sort of kept an action. We're coming up on 50 years of that of that time. That was also the same time that Moreland Spingarn became an official research center. Um, and so we're coming up with 50 years of that. And so you look at that time, right, and now, you know, almost 50 years, Howard has been given $2 million to digitize this historic newspaper collection. Um, I mean, it's just a dream come true. When you talk about the folks I've already met, the folks I've been in contact with, um, just the folks that run, come in and out of Moreland, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a truly a dream come true. And I wouldn't want to be any, any other place. And actually, this is actually, this is the last thing I'll say, this is actually um, leading me into what is probably going to be my dissertation. And I think it would just make sense if it was going to be something around the black press. I have so, you know, all these resources right here at the palm of my hands. Mm. Um, it would only make sense to do something around the black press. What that something looks, what that something is, I'm not sure yet. Um, but that's why we go to school and, you know, we, and we figure it out. Brendan, I can only imagine what you are going to have your hands on, maybe maybe technically not have your hands on because of how delicate and fragile they are, right? right? But how how much you will be seeing things that people haven't seen in years and years and years. And I'm guessing what 
NNPA handed over to you was not already beautifully digitized. No, no. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. And, and so, and so, so you are looking at truly original copies of black newspapers. Yeah, yeah. And tell us more what you think you're you're going to have and how you're going to to go through this process of digitizing it. Yeah. So it's it's for, for me, you know, I can't really get too caught up in the actual content. Right. I have to my, my focus is making sure we meet our deadlines. Right. Um, and also, you know, we're, we're highlighting things that we're coming across, you know, as, as we do and formulating content for our social media channels. And, and as we look up, look at what the website is going to look like. Right. Because the, the project was written under the guidelines that about 60 percent is made available to the public of the collection. So, you know, what makes the cut? You know, that's something we, we have to kind of think about now as, as we're as we're going through these articles. Um, and, and like you said, because. Half of the the half of the material that we have is on microfilm, and then the other half is the actual physical newspapers. And so, to start off, what we're doing is we're going, we're starting off with some of the more present papers, right? So, because because those are more easier to scan, so we know what we can. We have a, a higher um, sort of standard of what a good scan looks like, and then we're going to dig into you know some of the old papers. So far, the oldest we've came across has been 1999 and, and to be honest there's a lot of good stuff you can pull from that as far as content wise mm -hmm. um you know anniversaries that were celebrated during that time it's so much because you're talking about newspapers everything is going to be covered right there, there is no connection mm -hmm. that we cannot really make or, or pull from uh, so that's the beauty of it it is a challenging task because we can't we can't focus on every single thing in every single article right um, but I, I, my main focus is laying the foundation, making things are right. So that way we can take, like you're saying, those those original documents. And hopefully what we see in front of us is what the audience is going to see when it's published on our on our website. Right. Um, you know, having having the physical does help because we love it. But we want to be able to take the physical and make take that experience to the to the average uh, you know, research or, who, or whoever taps into our website when it's all finished. If you think back even further in your life to what prompted you to go down this path of studying history and and ultimately what really spurred that experience that you had at the National African American Museum that you thought, I'm going to dig into this as my career, right, as my as 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 where I, I I take my next my next act here. What was it? If you think back about the moments you had, the experiences you had, the stories that were shared with you that have helped guide your path. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great question. That's you know if you don't have a reason um, in this profession, uh, you're probably not going to last long. You're probably going to get overwhelmed um, because it's that it's that reason that keeps me going, keeps me focused. Um, and so, yeah, so that the reason for me of the, with, with the, the, the thing about the internship at the African-American Museum, I was there under um, the guidance of the then curator of the military history exhibit, uh, Dr. Karofsky Salter. And a funny story, I only got that job because I, I went to college with his son. Um, and so I was able to reach out to him. He wasn't able to pay me because he didn't really need an intern, but he was like, look, this experience will kind of change your life. Like you, you, you know, do what you got to do. Matter of fact, I remember kind of lying and telling him I'd already found a place 
uh, because I, I really wanted the wanted the you know wanted to get out there, even though I hadn't you know I hadn't found a place or anything just yet. But that was just showing like my passion for wanting to get out there and wanting to get, you know just get an understanding for this profession. So it wasn't until I got out there and the people that were I mean the museum had just sort of opened around this time, and so the people that I was running in contact with, I mean it was just amazing. But the the one thing that stuck with me and has carried me on you know throughout this journey is that experience taught me more about myself than anything um, I had come into contact with prior to that experience, mainly because on the second floor of the African-American History uh, Museum, um, there's the Family History Center, right? And, and that's where you can go there and you can, uh, they have experts there to help you, you know, trace your family history, essentially, just give you like some starting points, not a whole, you know, um, week or so. It's just sort of to help you, you know, get started. And I was blown away. I had never did anything on my personal family history. And now I am still currently in the process of tracing all my family roots back. Um, it's just been an, it's been an amazing journey to be able to go back to my family, excuse me, and, and mm -hmm. enlighten them on things that I've come across um, in the past and i'll just kind of give you just a little snippet and this i could actually turn this into a dissertation and, and believe it or not i actually did apply to brown university so if you ever have the chance to visit brown university brown university um was essentially started by the nightingale family these these are the white nightingales who long story short um they so one of the nightingales eventually moved to cumberland island georgia to see uh Gull Geechee sea island in georgia and that's where my family's from. And essentially they own my family. And that's how we got, that's mm -hmm. how we got our last name. Um, and so I've been able to sort of put that story together but with the help of researchers and everything, but it's that passion, right? And that that um, willingness from on my end to keep going despite, you know, a lot of the challenges, a lot of, for a lot of African-Americans, that's a deep, some deep stuff to take in, right? Um, but right. it's, I if how I see it is if I don't do the work, I don't know who else will. You know, nobody in my nobody mm -hmm. in my family ever really told me about this side of it. And maybe these are stories that families hold in, these secrets that these families hold in. Uh, well, I'm all about getting them out and more importantly, getting them documented, right? And re recorded. Uh, some kind of documentation because in my profession, uh, as a lot of people know, if you can't prove it, you know, it's what is it at that point? You know, if, if you can't right. prove what is it? So that's one of the things that kept me going. I, I have a whole bunch more stories, uh, but that that wow. specific trip um, to D.C. in 2017, summer of 2017, it, it changed my life uh, for, for the better, I, I would definitely say. Wow, Brandon, thank you for sharing that. And I can only imagine the, the power of that moment of learning your family history. Do you when you shared that with your family, were they learning things for the first time? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, my my father, what I was able to do, my father, which who carries the, the Nightingale name. So my family still lives in the in the area where my ancestors were enslaved and they never moved. Right. You can trace that area. It's, it's uh, uh, St. Mary's, Georgia, um, to the 1800s through census records. You can trace all that stuff. And so I was able to take my father 
onto uh, uh, Cumberland Island, which is the Sea Island. It's owned now. It's half of it is owned by the National Park Service now, so they administer some tours and take him on the tour out there. And you know, we were able. My, what we end up finding out after more and more research, after working with the National Park Service and the University of South Carolina on a project, that it was actually my grandfather who worked on the island um, in the 30s and 40s. And we actually were able to uncover his uh, interview that the National Park Service did with him in 1990. And so to hear his voice, right, I was I was young when he passed away. We were very young. So I had never really heard his voice too much. But to hear his voice as we went through Cumberland Island, right, he talked about working on the roads, that we were going down the roads that he that he was talking about working on. And with technology and everything, we were able to, you know, I was able to get it on my phone listen to his voice as I walked up and down. And so it's the, it's those kind of things that happen. And again, it goes back to, um, right, this idea of us being able to confront these horrible stories, right? It's, it's, slavery was a horrible thing. It's no way around. There's no other way you can cut it. But when you are able to go back to these places and I wouldn't even call it reconciling, but just there, there's an acknowledgement of where you come from um, the mm-hmm. people that walk that same land um, that are connected to you, um, it's much more than a, I can put into words. There was a spiritual connection, um, just so, so many things that, that, that go through my head. And, and this is research that continuously, continuously happens. So because of what I did with the uh, research with the National Park Service in South Carolina, people contact me all the time. Just a couple months ago, we had some scholars from the U.K., uh, talk of they they wanted my knowledge and opinions on um there was an enslaved woman that was on the island at one point and she ends up leaving the island going to the UK and she becomes a, a famous nurse out in the UK and so just for them to contact me and say hey we heard you were doing this history and this and that and now I'm talking to folks in the United Kingdom I mean it, it is just and I, I didn't contact them they they, wow. they contacted me um, because of, because you know they 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 heard all, all the stuff we're doing so um, it's it's been but that doesn't happen if I don't intern in 2017 mm-hmm. and and more importantly the, the what I since I moved back I moved back last year to DC or or I moved permanently here to DC um, the resources that are available here are just unmatched I mean Library of Congress I've been there a couple times now you got the National Archives here. Um, so many the African-American museums, so many places and resources and, and just an abundance of knowledge um, that is at my fingertips. So I, I'm making sure that I am taking every single opportunity to um, do, you know, stuff for the project, of course. But there's also like my own personal connections and stuff. So it, it, it's been truly, truly amazing. Brandon, a few moments ago, you were talking about your current job as a dream job. And I mentioned it to you at the top. You know, there's so many historians who I imagine um, very strongly suspect that the job you have now is their dream job, too. But as I listen to you, I'm realizing that there's dream job and then there's destiny. And it really feels like there have been certain moments and doors that have been open to you to lead you right into this into this job into this pathway yeah yeah no no i, I think about it often um you know i, I definitely i'm telling my parents and that's something we've been talking about lately is you know i didn't come out here by luck or by choice or not yet by choice of course but um it was it was no luck that i got out here 
Um, and, you know, and they helped me, you know, with the transition and, and move. And I still, you know, contact them and talk to them every week, as well as friends that I left when I, when, when I moved to Florida. But it's, it's obvious that I'm here for a purpose. Um, I reminded that every time I walk in Moreland and see my staff, um, you know, because it, it was a tedious process to get all them hired and, and get get everybody in. But now that things are moving along and, um, you know, we're able to start getting off some scans, I'm so anxious to, you know, get through those scans and start searching for, our, for you know, for things that we want to search, right? I, I love the story mm-hmm. of Mary McLeod Bethune. I, again, I was the architect at Bethune-Cookman University prior to my time. And so as soon as we get some things up and running and some actual content that I can search and and really research into. One of the first things I'm looking forward to is something on Mary McLeod Bethune, right? Because that she was just all over the place. And I know she was a member of the black press, right? And so that's mm-hmm. one just small example. Also on the genealogy side, again, tracing my family history, you can use newspapers. That's the genealogy tool right there. I mean, and there's so many other, you got newspaper.com, so many other sources and, and, and places of knowledge, but to think that I'm over a repository that mm-hmm. can possibly lead to somebody finding their family history or, you know, just that, just that alone is destiny in itself because I, I know firsthand right. how important that, that, that is. Right. Um, and so again, it, it's not by luck. I got here, definitely destiny. And uh, it's something, again, I'm reminded when I go through the halls of, of and when you know the history of Moreland and, and it being on Howard's campus and the history of Howard, um, it just it hits home so much more. And this is the last thing I kind of say is because mm. prior to this, my time I had not been I worked at an HBCU, but I did not attend one for school. And so even though I haven't started school yet, um, the atmosphere I'm in now at Howard um, is just amazing. You know, I'm so I'm used to being, you know, usually the only black guy in the class or uh, one of the few black people in the program. So now to come to Howard where I look up and the professors are black, the students are black, uh, that goes a long way, right? Especially, you know, we talk about your mental and, you know, representation matters. Um, that goes a long way. And that's ultimately why I, I was, I have to, for me, I don't know about the other person mm-hmm. that applied for the PhD program. For me specifically, I, I had to be, I, it was, I had to go to Howard. Mm-hmm. I had to go to Howard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So when you think about what's ahead of you, I'll I'll bring back up something you said before we started recording, which is you can't wait to start scanning, but first you got to get the foundation done, right? And that's really important because this is a groundbreaking project, right? This is a huge undertaking and the standards that you're putting into place, I know you're you're really thinking about this as what will this do to inspire other programs and other initiatives and other research efforts? So there's a lot that you need to get in place before you can get to that, digging into some of the stories. So tell me a little bit, what what does that include, right? For folks who are listening and trying to figure out what does it mean to be a historian? What does it mean to set up a groundbreaking research project like this? Um, how you're thinking about the steps that have to happen in order for you to get to those incredible stories that are going to be revealed in your future. Yeah, yeah, that's something we're, we're literally dealing with right now like as we speak as as my as i'm away from the office now um that's what i have my staff do is literally coming up with their work plans right so from the moment they walk into the door i want to know 
how are they starting their day? Meaning, if you're talking about just scanning a newspaper, right? That's that's the ultimate goal. Scan all these materials, scan all this project. Well, okay, how are we picking what we're scanning, right? What's the process for us picking a publisher? Just just that alone has created dialogue between my staff. Well, let's start here. Well, let's start with the Caribbean papers. Well, let's start with the African papers. Well, let's start with the papers that are in the U.S. because we are, you know, we have a connection and an established relationship with folks in an NPA. So all these discussions are had and. I think a lot of people just think, hey, let's just scan, scan, scan. Yes, we're going to get to a point where eventually it is scan, scan, scan. But for now, we have to determine what does the process look like as far as even, okay, once it's scanned, where are we saving it to, right? Because we have, right now we have sort of three different storage systems in place. Do we need to add another just in case? Like these are the things that we're currently figuring out. And then the last piece is, Dealing with such high-level equipment, um, I mean, the, we got some of the state-of-the-art materials uh, as far as equipment. Uh, we just recently went, took a visit to the Library of Congress, and when we go to the Library of Congress, they mentioned some of the sh machines that they work with, and in my head, I'm like, wow, these are the same machines that we have. So we have the best mm -hmm. of the best, thanks to the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation for giving us that $2 million to go out and get the best of the best, right? And then it's once you get the best of the best, how do you operate it? Okay, because we, we were able to get some right. training, but the main thing, and I was kind of mentioning you just to you before the call was uh, the the grant was written under these guidelines. The Fed, they're, they're called FADGI for short, F A D G I, um, Federal Digitization Guidelines. Essential, essentially, is what they are, and it's, it basically provides a standard of how you should be digitizing your material. So the little things like the output, you know, what should the DPI be, PPI, all that, all the fancy lingo that goes into into some of this stuff. What should that be to give you the best, highest quality image according to the standards that were put in place by people who are at the Library of Congress? So the highest of the highest. So we're now putting those initiatives into our workflow. So because prior to this, and I, I'm completely honest here. We were just eyeballing, right? We were just, mm -hmm. hey, that looks like a good scan on to the next. And that's not a bad thing because our equipment is so up to date, right? That what is a good scan for us is going to be likely a good scan across the board, no matter where you're looking at it. Right. But we wanted right. this standard to say when it's all said and done, when somebody asks, hey, how are you able to, to determine what kind of scan this is and all this and that? Well, we can point to to the to the Library of Congress and these guidelines and say we were scanning at the level of these these standards. Um, and it, just a little mm -hmm. bit about the standards, they're in four tiers. Um, and so for the four star is the highest star uh, through FAGI. That's what we're aiming for. Right. We may not always get it. So if we if we fall a little under three star is what the Library of Congress uses. Right. Um, and, and a lot of other uh, companies that we talk to, three everybody's cool with three star, but we want we want the best of the best. So we're going for four star, mm -hmm. and in any kind of situation we may not reach four star, th we'll we'll hit that three star mark. But just mm -hmm. off the principle of us having great equipment, we're already pretty much with our equipment at a two star just before we even do anything mm -hmm. because of the equipment that that we were able to get. So. Um, and, and it's also to say there are ways to get to these guidelines without this fancy equipment. It just takes a longer time. 
but the Library of Congress was able to point us in the direction of free software to achieve these guidelines. So I don't, as, as institutions will come and talk to us, I can show them what we have and, hey, we had all this money, but we also want to refer people to some free options because I know that, you know, other institutions, especially HBCUs, probably don't have the funds that we have to go out and get all mm-hmm. this. So we, we're, we're kind of, we know what we have, but we, we're looking out for other schools, other institutions, as they come to us and are wild and amazed, uh, we want to be able to say, well, hey, here's some free options to achieve these same standards. Brandon, how much of the archive, um, if you think about the body of the Black press, right, from the beginnings of the Black press, as you, as you talked about when you first started, how much do you think is actually still there that you will find versus how much of this body of work has forever been lost to history? Do you have any sense of that? Yeah, you know, that's that's a, such a great question. Um, and so this, I'll kind of tell you sort of my story since since we since we started. So when I when I took over, and this is again the truth, um, I was given an inventory list or a finding aid of the microfilms specifically. There was no finding aid for the physical newspaper. They were just sorted in all these different boxes and just mm-hmm. all over the place. But for the microfilm specifically, so one of the first things I did was go and try to see what was the oldest bit of material um, that was on that finding aid, right? Just the finding aid. And this was done, I think that finding aid was done in like the 90s or could have even been earlier. And I don't think there's been a complete inventory since then. And so as I'm digging through searching and searching, what I what I noticed is that there are some, we had some dates that uh, were... Um, Prior to 1867, right? I, we've seen something as, as, as far back as 1830s. Um, and so it's just understanding and knowing. And then this last thing I'll say, so even just last week, <laughs> um, I was, you know, I had a meeting and one of the students in the, in the library division in Moreland came down and was like, hey, we just came across about 30 boxes with microfilm in them and their black press. And they have not been inventoried at all. And so I say that to say, I have to kind of expect the unexpected here, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because Moreland is such a big place. Now that we have such a, a big, we're, we're growing our staff, we're increasing our staff, there's going to be other instances where I guarantee folks come and say, hey, we found this over way where it was not supposed to be. And it is putting more pieces to the puzzle, right? Um, so right. it, 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 the amount of stuff that we're going to be able to recover, I mean, some of the requests that we're getting is amazing. And I want to say, oh, my God, I, let me go. Let me go check and see if we got this right now. Um, someone wanted some stuff from the Wilmington Journal um, looking at a, a, a historic black African-American owned um, uh, hotel resort, things like the Seabreeze or something. And I'm just like, oh, my, can we go like search that now? Uh, but I, I, I'm so serious about making sure that the plan is in place first because if, if if we don't have a proper plan in place first it is gonna we're gonna end up coming back and re, re- revisiting and revisiting um so i just know that there is so much there and even though i know that some may be missing there, there's been some cases where we're missing microfilm reels don't know what happened don't and that's not really of course we want to try to find it but um there's gonna be some disappointment also too uh, but the good thing is 
we have the equipment to save whatever it is that we have our hands on, right? We can go back and put the pieces together and try to see, hey, who has these missing collections and do all that stuff. But we just have to work, work uh, focus on what we have in our collection right now, not get too sidetracked with what everybody else has. And then, you know, what does that look like to the public? How are we going to get that out to the public? Um, so it's it's very exciting. So much stuff we're, we're uncovering. I know we're going to uncover. Um, and then again, there's the unexpected, right, of what's out there that I have no idea even, can't even imagine um, that's sitting in our archive right now. But, you know, you just outlined it so perfectly. The project is too important not to be slow and careful in every step of the project. It's the perfect definition of patient urgency, right? That it would be great to run right into it, but having those important first steps in place will be critical to your success. Brandon, as we're wrapping up, I'm curious if you look ahead, whether that's five years, 10 years, whatever the marker is that you want to look ahead, what do you hope the impact of this project is on our future understanding of our past? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when I when I think about the project, specifically the end goal, I think about the global perspective, right? I think we get, I get so caught up in what's going on in the, in the U.S., right? Because uh, that's most of our papers are in, in the U.S. Um, but when you think about and when you see and look at our inventory and you see the different countries and different locations that the newspapers were in, um, it just brings a whole different perspective for what you're doing and why you're doing it. And so... My end goal for the project specifically is some sort of mapping element, right? So the to the to, to, to where we can get to the point where you can see like a globe like um figure be able to pinpoint any part on that globe and you'll be able to see some bit of the black press archives in that location, no matter where mm-hmm. you are um, on that globe. And so, again, that's that's a tough task, right? We have to first find out what we have to see if we can hit every part. But um, that's the that's what that's how I'm looking at. I, I can't get caught up. And Dr. Talton reminds me of that all the time with his you know African sort of background and his expertise in that field. Um, he's always thinking of Africa and how we can do, you know, to make those connections. And so that's one thing that I'm trying to um you know, incorporate into what it is we're doing, not just thinking about the U.S. American black press, but because we have these other outlets and these other papers, making sure not only do we tell those stories, but in the right context and the right knowledge. And and this Mm -hmm. is on the technical side, too, because uh, every paper that we run is going through optical character recognition to the point where you can just everybody loves to hit control F and search on documents. Right. There's a software that you have to apply to make things searchable. So what happens when you have a different language, right? How does that work? And so when we met with the Library of Congress, we, we asked them, what do you do when you come across foreign languages? You know, they told us, oh, it's a free platform you can use and it'll it'll do it right away. And, um, and so we were just amazed from that trip. And ultimately that's gonna help us tell these stories, right? And, and you know, just, just a simple translation uh, of, of, mm-hmm. of these stories is, that's, that's a whole, dialogue and discussion in itself right um just deciphering right. different you know foreign newspapers you know how, how what does that process look like and we haven't completely gotten there yet 
but it's something we're going to end up tackling once we kind of get a good understanding of the U.S. American-based papers. And that's also, this is the last thing I'll say, that's the beauty of my team, right, is I made sure I had such a diverse team, not just um, academic-wise, um, but also, you know, nationality-wise. You know, we, got, we have a couple of African students, American students, Caribbean students, bringing everybody in together um, and, and, and having seen them come up with different conclusions um, or different relations because of their upbringing. That's, I think, the beauty of this project. And I think if we have that at the core of this project as, as we're doing everything, then we're going to be successful no matter what because we're always conscious of our audience, okay? We, we, we are mm. not just thinking in the U.S. We're, and we're not just thinking present. My, my head is I'm five years already. What happens when this collection is complete, right? And, and right. when you talk about that, I'm thinking sustainability. How, how can we make sure that this website, these files will be accessible by the public for the next a thousand years that's literally mm -hmm. and that's so exciting when you think about it right when you when you really sit down and think about it that is exciting to even think about how can you project the next a thousand years or so but that's the, it's the truth people are gonna want these files a thousand or so years from now just 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 thinking about that uh give me give me goosebumps brandon it goes back to the incredible story of you uncovering your personal history and the trickle-down effect of what this project will do for how many thousands, millions of people will be impacted by this work for years and years to come, right? It's a global story, as you said, with incredible global impact. And I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to preview some of it with us today because I know it's still in its very early stages. Before we go, I really want you to tell folks where they can go to learn more and where they can support your work. Yes, yes. So um, we are, it's HU underscore Black Press on just about all platforms, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Um, I know we, we've been getting a lot of great, great feedback on our social media channels. Um, eventually, we're going to have a request form out. So anybody that has any requests on specific parts of the collection that they would like to you know, um, you know, just learn more about. We're gonna, we're gonna be able to answer requests. Um, you know, it's just, it just takes time to get everything together. But yes, hu underscore Black Press. Um, we just put up some posts. I believe today on my last post, we were able to welcome the founding director of Moreland. Um, he came back um, as you know, as we're celebrating 50 years of, of Moreland and the Black Press, and so. I was actually out that day, but my staff got to talk to him and he was a part of um, uh, getting the collection to Howard. And so um, the Black Press Archives collection, he, he was a part of that negotiation and getting it to Howard. So um, that's the kind of stuff that, that we're putting out and we, we want to engage with our audience all the time. Um, we're putting up stories about what's going on in the media currently and how people are reacting mm -hmm. to that. Um, so we have a great communications team. All the student staff is great. But yes, we are HU underscore Black Press, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're even on Facebook. I think we're going to start getting some TikToks out there coming soon. Um, and just I want to show off everything that we have from our scanners. Um, we're not turning anybody down that wants to come and visit and see what we're doing because I can talk about it. But when you see it in action and you see those scanners in mm -hmm. action, 
it is a truly a sight to see. And then when you get to talk to the students, it, it's it's truly amazing. Incredible. Well, I would love to have you back on when you're when your processes are in place and you've started to have some of that come in and you can give us an update on how it's going. But Brandon, I am so grateful for you to be here with us to start this season. You and your team are both preserving history and you are making history. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the future of this work. Thank you so much for being with yes, us. Yes, and thank you for having me, Carrie. And good luck, you know, as you bring on more guests. Definitely good luck. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Mission Forward. Thanks for tuning in today. If you are stewing on what we discussed here today, or if you heard something that's going to stick with you, drop me a line at Carrie at mission.partners. And Let me know what's got you thinking. And if you have thoughts for where we should go in future shows, I would love to hear that too. Mission Forward is produced with the support of Sadie Lockhart in association with the True Story team. Engineering by Pete Wright. If your podcast app allows for ratings and reviews, I hope you will consider doing just that for this show. But the best thing you can do to support Mission Forward is simply to share the show with a friend or colleague. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.